0: Welcome to the first in a series of ESG podcasts that Brandywine Global is going to produce, covering a variety of topics. My name is Patrick Kayser. I'm head of the Fundamental Equity Team here at Brandywine. With me today is Jim Clark, the Director of Research for the Fundamental Equity Team. And one of the thing, reasons we're doing this is ESG is getting increasing prominence, as you know, in the investment world. It's really quite stunning at this point. Approximately half of all U.S. mutual funds say they incorporate ESG. And that rises to almost 60% of equity funds. And so one of the questions that comes out of this that we're going to address today is what does that really mean? Is it really believable that 60% of equity funds incorporate ESG? One of the catalysts for this move is the adoption of the United Nations Principles of Responsible Investment, or the PRI for short, and it was certainly a catalyst for Brandywine, which became a formal adopter a couple of years ago. And around the world, it's sort of becoming the necessary standard, if you will, for many asset managers. We do see differences around the world globally in terms of asset owners and how much they prioritize ESG. 50% of asset owners outside of the U.S. say ESG is a high priority for their investments. Only 27% of North America asset owners say it's a high priority. One of the challenges though, as we think about how managers are integrating ESG into their process, is what does integration really mean? One of the major consultants recently did a survey of their clients and asset owners, and buyers are concerned about what they call greenwashing. And let me explain what we mean by that. A lot of times consultants take a meeting with an investment manager, and they'll wanna talk about ESG and that asset manager will have a point person for ESG that handles that meeting and it's very impressive and they talk about everything the firm is doing, both in their products and internally. And, um, <clears throat> you know, then the consultant takes that next step or the potential client takes that next step and does a due diligence with the investment team and starts asking them questions. And a lot of times the portfolio manager and the analyst can't really answer those questions. And so, you know, you get this kind of mix where firms are saying they integrate it, but you talk to the investment teams and it's less clear. So what we want to address today is what do we at Brandywine mean by integrating ESG into the process? What do we mean by engaging? And I think it's important to note, as I said, at the leadoff, you're not dealing with a Brandywine ESG specialist here. You're dealing with two members of the investment team, two senior members of our fundamental equity investment team. So let me kick it over to you, Jim. When we talk about how we integrate ESG into the process, what do we mean by that?
1: Uh, well, integrated means uh, we don't have an ESG team. There are certain things that you must do um, that are um, in order to have a fundamental view of a company, its, its rewards and its risks. And uh, three of those have initials of ESG. That's how we look at it. They're, they're the job of an analyst on a company um it's core to our process it's always been core to our process when we started thinking about this and when we signed urpi you know we asked okay what are we going to need to do different than we did in the past and we'll talk about that in a minute but what we realized was that our analysts were already doing these things i I remember a chemical company uh years ago early in my career where it, it went broke because of an environmental risk which was thoroughly disclosed in the 10k if you were just bothering to read it and look for that kind of stuff and if you're not looking for environmental risks on a chemical company you know you're not doing your job as an analyst um, whether you call it ESG or not Um, you know all all you need to do is you know look at GE over the last few years to understand what governance can do to a situation Uh, you know look at social media today if you're not thinking about you know social risks in in companies um, like that you know you're not doing a full analysis of risk so the way we think about risk is is how would we lose our clients money and that could be a balance sheet risk which is obvious from the financials but it could also be environmental, it could be governance, you know, it could be one of these things. So we don't outsource balance sheet risk analysis, nor do we outsource this. So Jim, I think that's a
0: pretty key point, because we do feel that we were doing many of these things before. We do feel that analyzing the risks was part of our job. But maybe we should expand a little bit on what exactly is different now then maybe it was two years ago. Because two years ago, we didn't have you know a list of ESG engagements in our client books, recent engagements. We weren't a PRI signatory. So maybe getting into some specifics is exactly what we've changed or modified since becoming a PRI signatory to make this more formal in the process might be helpful for the audience.
1: Well, by becoming a signatory, we were taking responsibility to make sure and document that you know, document to clients, document to the world that we're doing what we say we do. Um, so that involved literally documenting these things. So when an analyst puts out a an initial write-up on a company or we try to do once a year in updates, um, they're expected to have a, a full ESG analysis specifically. And at first you know, that felt awkward with a number of companies where, you know, what do we need an ESG, what do we need an environmental analysis for on a bank or what do we okay so some of them it's not as relevant but you certainly need governance on that. But let's let's take an example where an environmental analysis became very relevant in a place you wouldn't have expected to see it. This wasn't a chemical company, it wasn't an oil company. Actually makes beverage cans. Um, About nine months ago an analyst picked up very early before before the world picked it up that in a world where plastics were considered a, a threat to the planet, Beverage cans look pretty good because they're 100% recyclable. And since then, this company's customers, and more important, those beverage companies' customers have demanded a substitution from plastics to cans, which has benefited this industry tremendously. That was an environmental observation. It was a good one, not a risk, which we might not have uncovered as quickly as we did if we weren't specifically looking for these things.
0: One of the reasons that we have the analysts do it ourselves and and do the work ourselves as opposed to using rating services is at least for our fundamental equity team's process. We really think it's important that analysts, you know, they know the companies well. They should be able to identify the issues that really matter for the companies that we're dealing with. There's ESG services out there that rate companies with a holistic score. One of the things that we do in our team is, as Jim mentioned, we require a formal write-up when we first buy a stock, including an ESG section, so there's more rigor around that than maybe there was a couple years ago. We also rate each area separately, the ES and G components, and we might break that on a future podcast. But we do a red-yellow screen score, and we're really looking for things that are relevant. We're not looking for, for example, as I remember from earlier in my career, you know, a soda company that sells Pepsi on military bases and gets flagged by a Defense Department screen. That's not really the intent of those screens. Now. Jim, maybe you want to talk about why we do it ourselves a little bit more. You know, I will say at Brandywine, we have a variety of products. We have Sovereign Bond products. They may need a different process. We have quantitative products where those rating services are actually a lot more useful and fit better with the process. But from a fundamental standpoint, when we're doing individual company research in depth, Jim, maybe if you want to talk a little bit about why it's important to do it ourselves from our perspective.
1: So let's think a little bit about how our fundamental equity process works. Usually an analyst and a portfolio manager, in collaboration with each other, will work through all the elements of an investment idea, present it to the rest of the team. All those elements certainly includes ES&G, if those things, as Patrick said, are relevant to the valuation or risk of the company. But let's take an example, and let's say we were outsourcing that and we were getting a score from elsewhere. So the, the analyst and the portfolio manager do their whole analysis, come to the team, present it. And then someone asks, what what about ESG? Oh, let's get the score. It's a four. Okay, so what do you do? How do you weight that? It's clearly exogenous to your process. You've probably already 90% made the decision. That reminds us of putting it as the last page of your write-up, as that ESG stuff, rather than something that really is germane to an investment decision. And we believe it is. And the more we do it, the more we believe that.
0: Jim, that's an excellent point of talking about how it's germane to the decision because one of the things I think about and that we've been asked by clients or clients seem to be thinking it but maybe not saying it out loud is, why exactly are you doing this? Why exactly did we decide at Brandywine to become a PRI signatory? And from my perspective, there are several reasons. One, there is evidence out there, certainly on the governance side, that it produces better results better managed companies, better companies with better governance do better over the longer term. The evidence seems to be more mixed on the environmental and social side, in part because tobacco stocks have had such a great run in the U.S. the last 10 years. That kind of skews the data. But we we believe it is good for companies to be thinking about this stuff. We believe it's good for Brandywine to be thinking about this stuff. And we're seeing a lot of client demand. And it's interesting, and um, you know, Jim, go where you want with this, but in, in talking with companies – the last couple of years, we've seen a definite shift in their tone as well, in terms of how they are ready for and address these issues.
1: I mean, why do companies adopt things? Because their customers demand it. Often, sometimes companies lead their customers. Other times, customers lead their companies. And this is a little bit of both. You know, our clients educate us, and we like to be able to to know something they don't too about some of these things. So it's been a it's been a collaborative process in that sense. But we see that across multiple industries. i talked before about beverage cans where the customers who are beverage companies, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and more especially their customers who are often millennials, who are concerned about the environment, are leading the change of from plastics to truly recyclable containers. When we ask a question to CEOs, and believe me, this is not a uh, let's tag an ESG question on at the end of the meeting kind of thing, just so we can check a box. And we've had meetings where half the meeting is on I mean, we met with a timber company, and sustainability is critical in an industry like that. Why? Because the customer is demanding it. You are not going to do business with Starbucks if you are not sustainable. if you are not producing the proper score by Starbucks standards, not by yours, by your customer standards. And you know, we're in a similar position as investment managers, so we can have a conversation with with a CEO. And if they're not thinking that way, they could very well be the company that's going to lose the contract from Starbucks. We do not want to be in that situation.
0: And, and Jim, you've also talked about how in talking with company managements, there's been cases where they've talked about the demand from their own employees, if you want to touch on that a little bit.
1: yeah. One one of our favorite questions we've been asking certain types of managements, uh, you know, old old school industrial companies, places where you'd think we're on the wrong side of specifically e-matters, environmental and we've gotten some interesting answers to this question. So how do you uh, how do you hire millennial employees who are concerned about this? What do you tell them? And certain CEOs we've talked to, their eyes light up, and they're very proud of what they tell us. And these are chemical companies. These are paper companies. And they're very proud of what they can tell a millennial employee about how they're distinguishing themselves from the industry, why their process is sustainable. And that's important. It shows, A, they're thinking about it, and, B, they're, they're getting results that matter.
0: So, Jim, there's, there's two things I want to pick up on in mentioning the conversations we have with management. So first, one of the things that the PRI asks for is engaging. So we've talked a little bit in introducing the concept of integrating into the process, but you touched on it that there's many times where a third of the half of the meetings we've had with some companies are on ESG. So I think back to the time we met with Chevron CFO in our offices, we spent probably a third of that meeting with a top-level C-suite executive talking about ESG issues. I visited Ingredient out near Chicago, and we talked about where their next five years of goals are going to be. There's the, There's this engagement element. It's not just documenting, okay, here's where they are, and we've read the sustainability report, which we do, and we've read the proxy, and we've read the risk factors, but there's also this next step of engaging. So maybe moving from integration into the process and then engagement with companies, when we see a company with an issue, maybe talk a little bit about some of the things we've done there, some of the conversations we've had.
1: When we're thinking about negative issues, and as as we've been talking about these, they're not all negative that we identify, When you find a negative issue as an investment manager, you have two choices. You can not buy the company, which we've exercised that choice at times, or you can buy it and think about ways to mitigate that. One way to mitigate it would be, okay, it's not a big deal to the valuation of the investment because. Another way to mitigate it is to engage with management and attempt to change it.
0: Yeah, and so you know some of the things that we've done – Um, We've had a number of companies where we've written the board, talked to the board, talked to management about their compensation metrics. In In the energy industry, we had people being paid on total shareholder return, and we felt that means that being less bad than everybody else on a compensation metric or stock performance still leads to richly paid executives. We've had that to more absolute metrics like free cash flow and return on capital, things of that nature. We had Norwegian Cruise Lines in recently spent. Again, a third of the half to the meeting with them to talk about, okay, IMO 2020 is coming. It's going to have major impacts to marine fuel usage. What are you doing with scrubbers? You know, How are you making your ships more energy efficient? We also talked with them about their use of plastics. They're getting away from single-use plastics on a lot of their ships, things of that nature. So it does vary from company to company. In terms of how we engage, but we have five years ago, three years ago, I think I would say, Jim, at least, that we might have just kind of noted the risk and said, All right, we know it's there, but now much more active in our conversations with management. The other thing that comes up sometimes is people look at our portfolio and they say, All right, you have 18% in energy stocks. How exactly are you integrating ESG into that? So, a couple points I want to make here first, the PRI doesn't say we can't own anything. What we try to do is make sure we're being appropriately compensated for the ESG risks we're taking. We're not going to sit here and pretend to you out in the audience that we're impact investors. There's a range of ESG and sometimes people look and say, "All right, 60% of funds are ESG, you know, integrated in some way." We honestly don't believe that number from talking to some of our peers. But there is this point out there that does it prohibit you from owning anything? And look, You all are the clients, potential clients. You're going to drive some of that as well. But from our perspective, we're trying to document the risks, make sure that we get compensated for them, and essentially acknowledge that they're out there, that valuation isn't the only thing that matters. But at a price, these risks are reflected in that price. So I think it's important to think about, and Jim, I don't know if you have any additional thoughts that you want to kind of chime in on, on not owning things, owning things, how you think about price versus the ESG risks that are out there.
1: I mean, as a research director and um, you know, a, an analyst for you know, nearly 20 years, the big sin against a process is by losing money because of, re- of a risk that you should have found, because it was disclosed and it was knowable. There's things that just hit you out of left field. There's a million ways to lose money in this industry. And if you can control the ones that you should be able to control, which are disclosed, which are knowable, which are analyzable that goes a long way to mitigating risk of bad outcomes. And this just adds another layer to that where E, S, and G things, where they are germane to a company's business and valuation, and governance always is, that you know we've done the work on that. Um, It's always been a uh, wrong answer to give to Jim, the director of research, so if you read the proxy? No, it doesn't matter. Okay, bad answer. Likewise with environmental and social risks that are obvious with some businesses. And once again, the answer can't be the ratings of four. We need to understand those as part of the business.
0: So we've talked a little bit about, or actually a fair amount about, the risk side of things. And, you know, with the beverage can company, we certainly talked about the opportunity because aluminum is infinitely recyclable when compared to plastics. But, Jim, I know that recently, just in the last week or so, you've worked on an European company that does, I believe, heat exchangers. And and maybe you want to talk a little bit about the opportunity side of things, because on the one hand, there's the companies where either, whether it be fossil fuels or something else, where they're being left behind. But on the flip side, there are these companies that are going to take advantage of some of the trends that we see out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, here's an example where... um... You know, an analyst picked up something because we've been looking at this at ESG, specifically E in this case, as to what a heat exchanger is. I don't think I would have known what a heat exchanger was if I stepped on one, but this was a major business of this European company. And what our analysts picked up was that the major motivation for this business's growth, why the customers buy it on the margin, is environmental. Heat exchangers are a way to essentially recycle heat that otherwise would be dissipated in an industrial process, think about the amount of air conditioning that goes into the vast numbers of of data centers around the world that are growing like weeds. What if this company could get a bigger piece of that as part of its energy recycling rather than just run an air conditioner to, to suck up the heat? You could actually recycle it into something else. And that's the opportunity this company has. But on the surface, it looks just like a boring industrial company. And that's a matter of having done the work for more than several years, understanding when one of these comes up, okay, what are the right questions to ask? What should we be looking for? And you know, we spend an awful lot of our, t- our time on this one in ESG. It, it's certainly not uh, a few lines at the end of the write-up. It's the reason to buy the stock.
0: Yeah. And maybe I'll chime in with another example that I've worked on and then other members of the team have worked on because a lot of times you have both risk and opportunity at the same company. So going back to Ingredient, which used to be known as corn products, it's you know makes high fructose corn syrup. That's probably not something that is going to score favorably on an ESG screen in terms of both demand, trends, impact, things of that nature. But Ingredient is Potentially going to be one of the major players in alternative proteins. We're a value shop. We're probably not going to own beyond meat, but certainly we do see a market, growing market for alternative proteins. We own Tyson, we own a chicken company that, or a protein company, a major one doing beef, chicken, and pork, and they're moving heavily into that space as well. And so that's a trend we see in society. Is We see, you know, meatless Mondays. We see the impact of um, less meat consumption, the negative impact from beef especially. And so we can see as well as anybody the demand for alternative proteins. So a company like Ingredient, they make a pea protein isolate. You know, they're going to be a major supplier to the companies making meatless burgers. And I know that some vegetarians think we shouldn't use the word burger on a meatless thing, but that's a way to get consumer acceptance. Burger King has said that the Impossible Whopper you know, is materially adding to their customer base. It offers families an option where maybe more members of the family can eat, you know, find something they like on the menu, find something they're comfortable eating. And so at a a company like Ingredient, we've got this high fructose corn syrup issue on the one side. We've got this pea protein isolate on the other side. And by the way, the more they do with pea proteins, the more pea starches come out that provides a better nutrition element than a cornstarch for both human consumption and it also might be a good addition to dog food, so that's a growing business opportunity for them. So there's a lot of ways that plays out, and you know, we've spent seven or eight hours probably talking to ingredient about different parts of their business, and the ESG part is just another part of the business analysis, another part of the opportunity on when we look about potential growth in the financial statements. And it really is key. But we need to be thinking about both the risks and the opportunities out there. So, Jim, when you think about a value firm, a lot of people might have stereotyped us as focusing more on the G, on the governance part of things. But maybe I think you've got some interesting thoughts as maybe how this has evolved over the last couple of years in terms of where you might have predicted the emphasis that we and we'd, where we'd spend the time on ESG issues and how that's evolved over the last couple of years.
1: So I'm sure many investors are going through a similar process now of defining what this means and how to work with an analyst team on it. Um, It's something we've thought about a lot. When we started formally addressing this after becoming a signatory, governance was the easiest. And we found when when an analyst had to report an ESG section or an ESG disclosure, governance was, was the easiest one to report because these are things we've talked about for years as value investors, managements, boards, you know, compensation systems, uh, things like that. The E -E and S parts, it's easy to see them on some companies. But as I said before, that doesn't mean you don't look for them on others. Sometimes the answer is not terribly relevant, environmental with the bank. We do an international fund. If your bank is in Norway, where it's an oil producing country, it does matter.
0: Although I'm going to jump in here as one of the people that covers banks, because certainly when I write up JP Morgan or Citigroup and their e-impacts, we're looking at who they lend to. We're looking at the kind of projects they lend to. There's disclosures like palm oil disclosures. There's child slavery disclosures. There's money laundering. There's a fair amount even on the east side. And maybe it's not it's their own operations, but it is how they impact other people's businesses. And That's one of the things that I think we've gotten a lot better at, to Jim's point, is maybe two years ago we'd have said, oh, a bank. What do we like really to do with environmental impact there? But now all of a sudden we're looking at those metrics, and I want I want to give some major praise to the major U.S. banks here because they've got employee hours traveled, they've got you know miles traveled on airplanes, they've got impact from that. They are studying and reporting on their impact. So, not to distract from your train of thought there, but one of the things we have learned is exactly how many different places we can apply these and principles. I think that's
1: a great demonstration. Um, I'll come back at you, Patrick, and suggest that you're going to do the taste test on, on the ingredient <laughs> and products. My, my, my role as research director only goes so far. But what you just heard was, was a demonstration of previously how we might have thought about things. And I was demonstrating that I was still in an old school on thinking about banks. And Patrick is much closer to banks as part of the analyst team on that sector, and he just demonstrated why I was short-sighted on that. We've learned that in many industries by actually doing this. I just learned something here on the podcast. So we get better and better at this. It's been a two-year process, and I don't want you to edit that out because it made a very important point about how we learn. (laughs) Right.
0: So maybe wrapping up here a little bit, I think one of the goals for Brandywine's podcast series on ESG is to put investment professionals in front of the microphones to show you that we're actually doing this on the teams. Our plan for the series is to say, all right, how do we do this in quantitative products? How do we do this in global fixed income products? How do we think about it internationally, perhaps, versus in the U.S.? What are some of the major environmental issues? So we hope to make this a series. We appreciate your listening to this. And if you have requests for future topics, feel free to reach out.